God is in the process of redeeming us and our ambition. As we've seen, the solution to twisted ambition is not to throw out ambition, but in fact to have by the Spirit of God our ambition redeemed and reshaped. One of my concerns, as I've mentioned before this series, is that you might think I'm handing you a package or a product, a biblical understanding of calling, so you can figure out what your calling is, what your gifts are, your inclinations, what it is that you should do with your life, and a biblical understanding of ambition. So now you have the drive to live out your calling have a sense of purpose, and then off you go to a successful life. As we've seen, in redemption, God is in the process of redeeming and reshaping us, and that includes our ambition. As we've seen, God shapes us by dealing with our ambition in one of three ways, either delayed ambition, developed ambition, or denied ambition. Just to review briefly, to be human is to have your ambitions being delayed. We live in a fallen world. Things don't always work the way they should. But to be a child of God is also to have delayed ambitions. If you look back through Scripture, you can think of the many people whom God makes promises to, and then it's years later when the promise is fulfilled. Abraham usually comes to mind. He waited 25 years for Isaac. But Zib read to us in the last couple of weeks the story of Paul. He was Saul, and God said he would be the apostle to the Gentiles, but it would be 14 years before he entered into ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. So sometimes God causes us, or causes our ambitions to be delayed. And the process we see that waiting purifies our ambition, it cultivates patience, but ultimately it redefines how we see productivity. That we begin to see ourselves in terms of efficiency, as the world does, and when you have to wait, that's not efficient, but God in the process, I think, is changing our thinking. And then there is developed ambition. Again, God does not hand us this package that says, here is your ambition, it is something that must be developed. Remember, God does not need us, but amazingly, he works through us. And in working through us, we're not, we're not grad students already, we haven't graduated, we are working by God's grace, we are learning and we are developing a biblical sense of ambition. But then the third is the most difficult of all, and that is denied ambition. Living in a fallen world, to be human is to have denied ambitions, the dreams that you wanted fulfilled that are not. But oftentimes, to be a child of God is also to have denied ambitions. It's not a penalty. It's not a punishment. It is, in fact, the gracious work of our Father who is defining the path for our walk. If you wish, he installs fences along the way to keep us moving in his direction. And so sometimes God says no when it comes to our ambitions. One thing that we've seen is that ambition is so important that God undertakes a lifelong project in us, in our lives, forming and reshaping our ambitions that exalt him and bring us delight. Another of my concerns in this series is that 
and not just the series, but beyond, is that we might see ambition as merely a matter of knowledge or a matter of information or doctrine. It is a theological issue. Some, somehow it is disconnected or unconnected from practice. One of our texts last week was Romans chapter 12, in which Paul calls on the Romans to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And again, this tends to cause people to think, well, the Christian faith is primarily about the mind. It is a matter of thinking versus practice. And certainly, as one author put it, belief in the Christian God invites a new way to understand everything. We are to think in new ways. But we should also recognize the truth that practices shape our imagination. And in turn, our imaginative vision of what the good life is guides what we choose. Simply put, practices shape beliefs. So, when everything is said and done in our discussion of ambition, it isn't simply something in our heads, it is something that is to be put into practice, and sometimes it is put into practice before we fully understand, and that's fine, because practice shapes belief. Last Sunday, we were in Philippians, but in chapter 2. We looked at a familiar passage, the example of Jesus Christ, and the paradoxes that we find when it comes to Christian ambition. If you want to turn to chapter 2, since you're in chapter 4, near the beginning of the chapter, Paul writes, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who, being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And in this amazing passage, we see that a biblical view of ambition has many paradoxes involved with it, and there were five that we came up with. The first is that the greatest fulfillment is found in emptying, in emptying oneself. As we read, who being in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. The second paradox is that it is wrong to think first about one's rights. He did not consider equality something, or equality with God something to be grasped. The problem with ambition, oftentimes, is that we think in terms of our rights. As I said last week, rights are important. They do matter. When one person's rights are violated, that is injustice and oppression, and we want to be known as people who fight against injustice and oppression. But while we fight for the rights of others, we are not supposed to be known by an ambition that is there to protect our own personal rights. And we see this in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paradox three, it is really something to be nothing. Jesus could have come as king, and who would have disputed his rightful claim? But as Paul tells us, he took the form of a servant, of a slave. One writer put it this way, in a fundamental sense, slavery involves the absence of rights, especially the right to determine the course of one's life and the use of one's energies. 
What is denied the slave is freedom of action and freedom of movement. He cannot do as he wishes or go where he wishes. The faculty of free choice and the power of refusal are denied to him. And we see this in the Lord Jesus Christ who took on the form of a slave. Paradox four, when it comes to self-evaluation, don't trust what you see. And this comes from the verses at the beginning of the passage. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. The problem for us as Christians when it comes to ambition is not self-awareness. And that is not wrong. Rather, the problem is the wrong kind of self-awareness. And the key, if not the key to this, is humility. When we consider ourselves better than others, then our self-awareness is way off and it needs to be corrected. And the fifth and final paradox, which to me is perhaps the most significant, and that is that true humility promotes great ambition. What is humility? We could spend an entire series on that, but it's found in our passage and what we've been talking about. Christ's humility is seen in his actions. He made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. Simply put, Christian humility doesn't mean we stop doing something. That we stop in our steps and say, I'm not worthy, I can't do anything. We just sort of fold our hands and bow our heads and don't do anything What we see in the Lord Jesus Christ is that it is his humility that drives his actions. When we become too humble to be ambitious, we have stopped becoming humble. Humility should never be an excuse for inactivity. Humility is to harness our ambition, but not to stop it or to hinder it. And if we are too humble to be ambitious, then we really do not understand humility. When we read of Jesus' humility, we see a pattern, a pattern marked by ambition and by activity. Today, I want to consider another aspect of ambition, that is contentment. You may remember that I made the comment several sermons ago that if you had to hire one of two people and one of them was a covetous person and the other person was marked by contentment, For all our protestations against covetousness, that it's wrong, I think we would be more inclined to hire someone who is driven than someone who is marked by contentment. Someone who has a drive. It may be the wrong drive, but at least they're doing something. A person who is content. Well, if we think of someone who is content, we think of someone who does nothing because, in fact, they are content. We recognize that the person who's driven will be difficult to work with and and perhaps even a jerk, but they'll get things done. And that's, in our culture, what we want. The person who is content for all their niceness and their contentment may not do as much as we would like them to do. And here's the tension for many of us when it comes to the matter of Christian ambition. How can I be ambitious and be marked by contentment at the same time? Well, we are still in Philippians. Last week we looked at chapter 2. Today at chapter 4. 
And look, if you would, our text is verses 10 through 13 of Philippians 4. And here I think we learn what it means to be content. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Let's begin by acknowledging that when things don't turn out the way we want them to, when it seems that God acts contrary to what we think his will should be, we become disappointed, and disappointment is understandable. But when disappointment comes to define us, then we are marked not by contentment, but discontent, discontentment. And it tends, discontentment tends to arise when our ambitions are frustrated, when things don't turn out the way that we want. We aspire to do something, on the face of it, perhaps something very good, something that is entirely appropriate and legitimate, and something that we think would bring honor to God. But it seems that God fails to keep his end of the bargain, and so we are disappointed and marked by self-pity. At this point, something should become clear to us, but I think it rarely does. Discontentment tells us, certainly it signifies, that there was much more to our ambitions than we realized. We thought we were simply being ambitious to do the right thing, but when it doesn't work out, we are disappointed, we are discontented, we are frustrated, and suddenly we need to ask ourselves, what happened there? Was that something other than what I thought it might be? We have seen that God in his grace and his care sometimes delays or even denies our ambition. The big question is, how are we going to deal with that? In other words, are we going to be marked by contentment? The Puritans wrote a great deal about contentment. We have a number of their books up in the church library. If you know anything about the Puritans, they, they were sort of like Russian writers. It seemed like they got paid by the pound. They were just very verbose. They just wrote these massive things. So when you find a pithy saying from a Puritan, it's worth noting. And Thomas Watson, in his book, The Art of Divine Contentment, wrote this. If we have not what we desire, we have more than we deserve. I actually have been thinking about this for the last month. It's one of those, it's like, what is the sound of one hand clapping type of deal? So it's like, what are you trying to say? But stop and think a minute. If we have not what we desire, we have more than we deserve. That is, when we don't have what we desire, it is important for us to recognize and acknowledge we have far more than we deserve. We need to learn contentment. What we read in our text today in Philippians 4 is familiar enough. But stop and think a minute. You may be familiar with this passage, but but who wrote this? Um, 
as Dave Harvey wrote in his book, it wasn't a hermit living apart from society on some mountaintop. It wasn't someone who had it all. It wasn't Oprah. This was written by a prisoner in Rome. Someone who was a prisoner. And not simply any prisoner, it was Paul, a man of action, whose, if you wish, apostolic career seemed to come to a grinding halt. Now he can't travel around and preach where he wants. Now he is a prisoner. And in chapter 1, he anticipates that his death is near at hand. He's a prisoner and it's, he will either be released or he will be executed. Those to whom he is writing in Philippi are beginning to experience persecution. But they also have problems within the congregation. Problems without, problems within. And what we read in this passage is not sort of the calm reflections of a philosopher who is deep in contemplation. We have a man who is desperate to protect the church, to preach and preserve the truth, and to help solve the problems in the church in Philippi. These sound like noble ambitions. And in fact, it sounds like this would be a good enough reason for God to have Paul released from prison so that he can take care of these things. But God does not. Paul is stuck in prison. And the God who commissioned him to be an apostle has now confined him to prison. And Paul didn't have a cell phone or the internet, video conferencing. And the only way to act on his calling and his ambitions was to send letters through envoys. One could not blame Paul if he were disappointed. But in this amazing passage, Paul tells the Philippians, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. What? You're in prison? Yes, but I am not in need. The Apostle Paul possessed what one Puritan writer called, and it's the title of his book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. What is contentment? In part, it means to be satisfied and at peace with God's will in all situations. We sang about it in the two hymns, Be Still My Soul and It Is Well With My Soul. Let me ask you something about Paul. What you know from the New Testament and Paul's writings, based on what you know, would you say that Paul was an ambitious man? I would say that he was. He was certainly a driven man then how was it that he was content? It was because his ambitions were not selfish. And because they were not selfish, he could live even though they were unfulfilled. He had great ambitions. Read Romans chapter 15. He tells the Roman Christians, you know, I've wanted to go to Rome for a long time, but I have this goal, this ambition. I only want to preach where the gospel's not been preached. And so I'm going to go to Spain, and so I'll stop in Rome on my way. He had a great ambition. But in fact, he ends up in Rome as a prisoner. He never makes it to Spain, as far as we know. He is a prisoner. But his ambitions were not selfish, and so when it was not fulfilled, when he didn't get to go to Spain, he was still content. He had dreams and desires. Again, Romans 15, 2 Corinthians 1. But they were God-focused and not self-focused. 
If they were unsatisfied, if they remain unsatisfied, that was God's business. So Paul was able to aspire for more while resting peacefully in what God had provided. He hungered for more, but was content with less. How is this possible? Well, he told the Philippians, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances, verse 11. Verse 12, I have learned the secret of being content. And the natural question is, what is that secret? How did Paul learn to be content? How can I learn to be content? Paul describes in these verses the two ends of the spectrum of human experience. On the one end, to be in need, to be hungry, to be in want. On the other end, to have plenty, to be well fed and living in plenty. I want to start where we think we would least likely learn contentment. And that is what Dave Harvey calls the test of prosperity. Paul makes a rather astounding claim in this passage. I know what it is to have plenty. This hardly sounds like a test or a lesson for contentment. But Paul had learned in times of abundance because with great blessings come great temptations. Charles Spurgeon, an English pastor of the 19th century, said the Christian far oftener disgraces his profession and prosperity than when he is being abased. Having one's ambition satisfied can be a double-edged sword for the follower of Jesus. It's an astounding verse in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 27:21. The crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but man is tested by the praise he receives. That is to be in plenty, to have everything you want. It's an amazing statement to compare when people say, good job, well done, to a furnace of heat for gold. Praise is not limited to words or need not be limited to words. It can include a bonus at work, promotions, recognition, fame, anything or anyone that tells us we are wonderful. When I say the test of prosperity, when we hear the word test, we may think of things we want to avoid. Yeah, the things about being hungry and in want, yeah, that's a test, but a, a test when things are going well. But, by the way, just a side note, those of you who are teachers know this, the one thing we hate to hear from students, is this going to be on the test? Yes, all of life is a test. And Paul says, yeah, I've had the test of prosperity. I've learned to be content. Let's, let's be honest. Living when and where we do, this is more likely the test we will face than the test of adversity. So when praise comes our way, what is our response? Are we grateful to God for what he's been able to do through us? Is there a sense of humility? Or do we become hungry for more praise? Stop and think about this a moment. It's one of those counterintuitive things. If we are selfishly ambitious, if we are sinfully ambitious, when other people praise us, this is more likely to bring discontentment than contentment. 
we would think, well, if I'm praised, then, then I'd be happy. But in fact, it breeds a certain discontentment. Sort of like, tell me more, tell me more. Or it brings suspicion. I wonder why they said that to me. I wonder what they want from me. To learn contentment, we must first deal with the test of prosperity. And then at the other end of the spectrum is the test of adversity. This is usually where our thoughts go when we think of testing. Testing as a Christian means losing things, so it seems. The end of the spectrum is where, this end of the spectrum is where dreams go to die. I hesitate to mention any examples lest you think I have you in mind. In reality, we all have been at the end of that spectrum where our dreams have gone to die. Paul certainly had, and he had experienced great adversity. In 2 Corinthians 11, he gives sort of a brief catalog list of the things that he has gone through. It says, I've been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus, nine, minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Here Paul is speaking of the things he has suffered for the cause of the gospel, but surely these can be included in what we find in Philippians 4, to be in need, to be hungry, and to be in want. What happens, or what do we do, when our dreams and the real world, our life, do not intersect? When life seems to be pushing us down rather than lifting us up? When God seems to take away what we hold so dear? Jai Packer wrote, The world's idea that everyone from childhood up should be able at all times to succeed in measurable ways and that it is a great disgrace not to hangs over the Christian community like a pall of smoke. We are a society that defines itself by success. And if you are not successful, what a disgrace that is. And that hangs over the church. And in some ways, the church has given into it. So that sometimes churches are known as successful churches, or pastors as successful pastors. These are certainly not biblical ideas. If we have not what we desire, we have more than we deserve. By the way, at the heart of discontentment is a conviction, I don't have what I deserve. And that is absolutely true. You should fall on your knees and thank God that you do not have what you deserve. The gospel reminds us that regardless of our state or condition, high or low, plenty or hungry, abundance or need, we have infinitely more than we deserve. 
So Paul had learned to be content. How can I learn to be content? I want to have Christian ambition, but I also want to have Christian contentment. Well, Paul wrote in in verse 13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Jesus Christ is the one who gives us strength to learn contentment. By the way, just a side note, this is one of the most abused verses in the New Testament, it seems like, who take it to mean, uh, people take it to mean that they can do anything through the Lord Jesus Christ, including, I think, winning a gold medal in the Olympics. The reality is, look at the context, the everything that he's talking about is being anywhere on the spectrum of human experience and being content. The good end, if you wish, or the horrible end, if you wish, or anywhere in between. That's everything. And still be content. As Paul wrote earlier, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. On the face of it, what Paul writes in verse 13 seems like a straightforward statement. And if we're not careful, we will either twist it to mean something that it doesn't mean in a a very American way, or in a very Greek way, we will make it sound like something that is quite stoic. When we went through Philippians, I I talked about this. It's one of the the fascinating things in in biblical history and human history, um, that at the time Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians, he is a prisoner in the palace of Caesar, Nero. And Nero's advisor was Seneca. And Seneca was the, capital S, Stoic of that time. And the Stoics were marked, it was a movement that began in the 3rd century BC by a man named Zeno. And basically, they came to basically say, you take whatever comes. In some ways, if we read this passage through the lenses of Stoicism, it almost makes sense until we get to verse number 13, and then it all blows up. Because verse 13 tells us something quite different. Just a side note, it is fascinating to me that in this passage, for the word content, Paul uses the Stoic word. I, I would have thought he would have run to the other end to say, I'm not going to use any words that those pagans use. But he uses the word that they use, but he redeems it. Because they talk about being content, but in fact... It is not true contentment. The Stoics said, uh, this is actually Seneca, no man finds poverty a trouble to him, but he that thinks it so, and he that thinks it, makes it so. So if you think you're poor, then you are poor. In fact, you should take whatever comes your way. But this is not what Paul is saying. You see, the Stoics believed that contentment came from within. That you were to be Stoic. Modern terms, to grin and bear it. Verse 13 tells us, from Paul's perspective, to learn contentment comes from without. Comes from the person of Jesus Christ. From being in Christ, one can learn contentment. Contentment is to be learned in him. We need the power of Christ through His Spirit. We cannot do it on our own. So, fine, fine, fine. 
How can I learn to be content? Let me suggest two things for you to think about as we leave today. First of all, contentment requires daily practice. Paul said that he had learned to be content. Being human beings, contentment does not come naturally to us. It is something we have to learn. It is something we have to work out by the grace of God. We must practice contentment on a daily basis. And I think a good place to start is to meditate on what we have been given. I'm almost certain that you're not like me, but perhaps you are, that my mind tends to go toward what I do not have rather than the things I do have. The misery that I am experiencing rather than God's mercies that he shows me every morning, every afternoon, every evening. We should meditate on what we have been given. I think we've failed to recognize what we've been given. And we only think in terms of what we want. We have been given so much. If you think you do not have what you desire, consider this. You have God's love. And what we read from Romans chapter 8, nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but that's, that's, that's weighty stuff. That's far more, I think, than we could ever desire. Then the second thing with regard to contentment. Set your sights beyond contentment. In other words, don't say, okay, my ambition in life is to be content. I don't think that that is a sufficient ambition, if you wish. If all we want is to be content, then somehow we will miss something that is truly important. And that is that we are to delight in God and he is to delight in us. If all we're doing is shooting for contentment, then when we think we have arrived, then that is the end of the story. But if, in fact, we look beyond contentment to delight in God, to please him, to do the things that please him, but also his joy in us, his delight in us. I think that's where our thoughts should go. Not simply say, well, I'm aiming for contentment, and when I get it, then I'll be happy. I will be content to be content. I think it is much more than that. The Stoics could have made a case that they were in fact content, but it was quite apart from the Creator. It was a self-contained contentment. And if we're not careful... That's how we will begin to think of contentment. One author has written, Christian contentment is the direct fruit of having no higher ambition than to belong to the Lord and to be totally at his disposal in the place he appoints at the time he chooses with the provision he is pleased to make. Shoot beyond ambition. Aim beyond mere contentment and have the ambition to please the Lord. The Lord willing, next Sunday will be our final sermon in the series on ambition. And we will look at two more aspects. Failure 
and risk in Christian ambition. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we live in this culture and it affects us far more, far more deeply than we recognize. And we tend to forget that you are redeeming us, reshaping us, transforming us into the image of your son. And this includes our ambitions. We are to have Christian ambition and we are to be content. But in many ways to be not simply content with being contentment, but to have the ambition to please you to delight in you and to have you delight in us. For all the economic difficulties in our country today, we're pretty well off. And perhaps we have failed to recognize the test of prosperity. If the time comes in our lives when we face the test of adversity, may we, as in prosperity, learn to be content. When our ambitions, when our dreams die, to know that that's not what defines us. That you are the one who created us. You are the one who is recreating us. And one day you will bring us to live with you. I thank you for this time that we could come together to worship you. We pray for our time afterwards and we ask your blessing on that which Zib has prepared for us. May what we do this day be pleasing in your sight. May your grace and your spirit go with us this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.